You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Randy Nessie, who is the founder and director of the Center for Evolution and Medicine at Arizona State University. Welcome, Randy. Thanks so much, Greg. Great to be with you. And I forgot to mention, of course, that you are the author of some books that that I've enjoyed. This one, I think I must have read it 25 years ago or so, Why We Get Sick, which you co-authored with George Williams. And I'll have to ask you about, you know, how you got to know George and, and started working with him. And then also this more recent book, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, which is more narrowly focused on mental health and which is, I guess, an expansion of a chapter that you had in the earlier book that was, you know, really what drove you to this discipline in the first place, right? Yeah, so there I was, a proper academic psychiatrist at University of Michigan, uh, helping to run and develop one of the first anxiety disorders clinics. And I just felt like I didn't want to just be a pharmacologist or a psychoanalyst or behavior therapist. It seemed to me there had to be something much more fundamental. And I had always been interested in ethology, and it became clear to me that there's a whole science out there that we in psychiatry had not been using, and it was time to get into it. Now, why do you suppose it is? I think folks in psychiatry, folks in mental health, yes, they dismissed the the Freudianism that we had in the earlier part of the 20th century. And I think most people in mental health would say that they are scientific and that they are doing the best type of evidence-based science when they focus on things like brain disorders and so forth. You didn't go in that direction. You went in a slightly different direction. What, what inspired you? I think you recounted in, in the book about how you encountered the work of sociobiology. I think you read some books and uh, started going to some conferences. What inspired you to take this kind of evolutionary approach? Once I started talking with biologists at the museum at the University of Michigan, um, I suddenly realized that I and everyone in medicine had only been using one half of biology. That is, we were trying to figure out the mechanisms of everything, and we weren't taking seriously questions about why things are the way they are. I mean, why is the birth canal narrow, and why do we have vessels and, and nerves going between the light and our retina, and why can we choke, for goodness sakes? I mean, there's so many designs that once you look at them, it just seems stupid. And all of a sudden, I realized that there's a whole foundation for understanding behavior that we haven't been using. I started reading books about animal behavior in particular, and the whole field of animal behavior was just changing at that time. It used to be German and descriptive. And after Bill Hamilton and George Williams and others, it became evolutionary. In fact, essentially all studies of animal behavior are now based on evolutionary thinking about why animals do what they do. And even still in psychiatry these days, very few people ever get a chance to learn any of that. Everyone's still focused just on one half of science. We're we're getting there a little bit. A group in the UK are especially advancing the cause. They have, I think, 1,500 members in their evolutionary psychiatry special interest group for the Royal College of Psychiatry. So it's, it's gradually coming. But if you're a psychiatrist, you have to do what works right now. And trying to understand the basics doesn't seem all that practical. It turns out it is very practical in the long run, though. I wonder if you could elaborate on that, because I mean, if you have a car and and the car has a problem, aren't you just worried about fixing it? Why do you need to know, for instance, I think you used the example of vapor lock, right? So, you know, you have a problem in your car where the fuel's too hot and you just fix the problem by making it cooler. Why do you need to know why it got hot in the first place? What's the relevance? I mean, don't you just want to fix the problem? You do just want to fix the problem and and your mechanic probably would say, cool down the engine and wait until your vapor lock stops. But if you step back from an engineer's point of view, which is what evolutionary medicine does, you instead say, well, why the heck? 
do cars in general have vapor lock? And the answer is that it's very hard to pump vapors. You can only pump gas. And once things get too hot, which is often the case under the hood, thank goodness we now have fuel injection, which solves a lot of this. But for years and years, the best engineers in the world could not find reliable solutions to that. It's just an inherent vulnerability in gas-powered engines that are carbureted. And likewise, in the body and in the mind, there are all kinds of other inherent vulnerabilities. And the question for us in evolutionary medicine and in evolutionary psychiatry is, so why didn't natural selection do better? What's the constraint? Why can't you make it better? Now, look, I understand why scientists are interested in these kind of why questions, because they're just fundamentally interested in the nature of things and, and they're curious. You know, doctors aren't necessarily scientists, right? Doctors are like car mechanics. And so what benefit do they get they're from all, no, educating? They're, no, they're not. They're all trained to be scientists. That's not being fair to doctors. They're, most of them have quite good educations in, in science in general, only just one half. You know, they're just studying the, the mechanics of things and not why things are the way they are. Yeah, it's so hard to try to master everything, isn't it? Let's go that direction just a minute, Greg, because you're interested in interdisciplinarity. And the great challenge for these fields is how the heck do you, you know, talk with doctors about a whole field of animal behavior and evolution that they don't know much about? And conversely, how do you get real experts in evolutionary biology and animal behavior and ethology to really talk seriously about mental disorders when a lot of them have opinions about it, but they've never seen a patient and they you know, make guesses and speculations that are often pretty wild. Those of us who try to straddle the middle, well, it's pretty much of a no man's land out there because you can't know enough uh, to really be right every time. I think this field has grown because of the generosity of a bunch of biologists. They've taken amateurs like me and listened carefully and said, well, you know, you might be right about that, but you're certainly wrong about that. Um, and the, if you get straight in a kind way by really knowledgeable people, that can help you on your way. But that's not always the case. There are a lot of people, especially in genetics, who just want to dismiss anybody who isn't doing exactly what they're doing. And likewise, in medicine, there are a lot of people who say, we know what we're doing, leave us alone. On the other hand, there's just enough people who are willing to build up with, you know, the challenges across boundaries to make fields like this grow. And a lot of good is coming out of it. Yeah, I was being, trying to be a little bit provocative by, by asking you this, and I know you have a really good answer for it. At the very beginning of the Why We Get Sick book, you recount a couple of success stories very early on, for instance, discovery that fever uh, as a symptom may actually be be good for you and that efforts to alleviate those symptoms can actually be counterproductive and also anemia and others. Those are some early cases. Let's pause right there, Greg. Do we really know right now in what way and how much fever benefits you and what the costs are for blocking fever? There have been some studies comparing you know, the Tylenol versus placebo for people who have things, and they're remarkably inconclusive. But exactly how does fever work? My friend Carl Bergstrom and I speculated together moderately responsibly after reading 100 articles, that there's something special about fever. It's not heating bacteria up by a few degrees does not kill them, you know? It just doesn't. They're perfectly happy to grow. Instead, we speculated that it might well be that fever is a, a signal that can't be subverted. Now, the bacteria and viruses have all kinds of special tricks to get around the mechanisms we use to control them. They shut down parts of our immune system. They hide in our immune cells. That's what HIV does. There's this arms race that's been going on for a few billion years. But fever is a pretty good mechanism for turning on a system to kill things because they can't turn off the fever, at least not very easily. Some of them I think probably can, but fever basically turns on 
a bunch of good immune responses. And then you have to ask the question, hey, if that's so good for you, why not have it on all the time? And the answer is that everything in the body is a trade-off. And you don't want your immune system cranked up all the time because that's going to be damaging tissues. And then you have to ask yourself, as I did, what about those people who take saunas every day? for an hour and a half and crank up their body temperature. It seems like a healthy thing to do, but from an evolutionary point of view, thinking about how fever works and the trade-offs, that might well cause aging to speed up. And I've looked for data on this. I've never found anybody who's on the study. In Finland, for instance, you'd think, hey, they, they take saunas a lot there. Maybe they age more quickly or something, but you can't get the data because it turns out that people who take saunas a lot tend to be more into health anyhow. So that probably counterbalances anything. There's so much research just right, Greg, if only we could get people to see the questions. So you're saying then that this having a different theoretical approach leads you to ask a different type of question, different set of questions, which would then orient you in a different direction in terms of your, your research agenda. That's for sure. And even in the clinic, it really fundamentally changed what I did. I was looking back and saw I wrote my first paper on evolution and psychiatry in 1984. And it was kind of embarrassing to say that most of the ideas that I have now are right there in that 1984 paper. One of them is that panic attacks are not just abnormal things that come out of a bad brain. They are a flight response that can be life-saving if you're in the face of some predator or other life-threatening danger. And I had spent the last 10 years in this anxiety clinic telling patients, no, um, it's not just your worries, it's actually a brain abnormality, and just do what we say with taking drugs and behavior therapy and you'll get better. And they didn't believe me. You know, They said, well, I know it's my heart, I know it's my brain. But once I started explaining to them, I said, listen, what you're experiencing is a useful response but it's a false alarm. That fast breathing, those tight muscles, perfect to get you out of danger. That wish to get out of whatever small room you're in, perfect. That fear of open spaces, open spaces were dangerous for us when we only had wooden spears. And all of a sudden, my patients' attitudes towards their own disorders changed dramatically. Instead of saying, oh, I'm a defective person, they started saying, wow, I have advantages as well as disadvantages. And the fact that I can see that this is a false alarm in the system hey, I'm going to start paying attention to my panic attacks about as much as I pay attention to my smoke detector when it goes off when I'm making toast. It just fundamentally changed their whole schema about how they think about themselves and their illness. Yeah, I think what's unique about this evolutionary approach is that, it, and to me, it resembles economics in a lot of ways because it really is all about trade-offs. And, you know, the answer to every question that I ask my students in my classes is, you know, it usually begins with, it depends. You know, is this a good thing or a bad thing? It depends, right? Let's look at the costs and let's look at the benefits of everything. And I think it's that lens through which you, you view everything, which forces you to search for things that you wouldn't otherwise search for. So you're an economist by background in part, is that right? <laughs> I was an historian originally, and then I wound up as an economist by default. But one time I was asked to teach biology and, and I realized that all I had to do was use the same models, just cross out the terms. And instead of utility, right. optimum maximization, constrained maximization of utility or profit, it was just constrained you know, maximization of fitness. That's right. That's right. I actually had the privilege of co-teaching a course on evolutionary medicine with an economist one year. And we had a ball because just as you say, there's nothing in the body that can be perfect. Right now, I'm writing a chapter about evolution and anxiety. So how much anxiety do you want? What's the optimal amount? Everybody says, oh, I'd like to be really calm. 
Yeah, but you're liable to do stupid, dangerous things and die. So if you don't want to be way towards that, we call it hypophobia. Hypophobia is a disorder I never recognized as an anxiety expert. But it's just like you can have too much immune response or not enough immune response. You can have too little anxiety and it's fatal, but nobody comes to the clinic complaining about it. The vast majority of people, though, have too much anxiety. We all think we have too much anxiety. So how come it's set way towards that end of the spectrum? And the answer there is that, hey, an anxiety is cheap. It makes us feel awful, but natural selection doesn't care about that. Um, it's cheap and protects us from potentially really bad things happening. And it's good for our genes, even if it makes us miserable. Well, I think you demonstrate how this way of thinking comes from signal detection theory and in the world of data, I teach data science, and when we're teaching data science, it's all about classifiers and confusion matrices and false positives and false negatives. And accuracy is never the goal, right? It's cost minimization or, or benefit maximization. And so when your cost of uh, a false positive and the cost of a false negative are radically different, then actually making more errors could be, could be the right way. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, you have to ask, what are we trying to maximize? And this still blows me away, Greg. And I still am disturbed by the whole recognition that natural selection does not shape us for health or happiness or good relationships. It shapes us to do whatever is good for our genes. Usually that's the same thing, because if you're dead, you can't reproduce, right? But most people spend so much time feeling pretty miserable because of emotions that are there to get them to do things good for their genes. Everybody is full of unrequited love or sexual longing or frustration or anger and for status competitions. And most of those things don't help us all that much, but they are you know, helping our genes if we try to relieve ourselves of those kinds of unhappiness. It's a very broad perspective. It doesn't change things. I mean, you can't just say, oh, it's just my genes trying to get me to do it. That's like saying, oh, it's just my hunger system trying to get me to eat, so I'll stop eating. That doesn't work. But it does give you at least a little sense of humor about all these problems we face in life. But I think critics of the Darwinian approach or the evolutionary adaptionist program would say, I think there'd be a couple criticisms. One would be this, this idea that you call VDAA, viewing disease as an adaptation, which is like a, a Panglossian approach where everything is as it should be. Everything is perfect and everything is a successful uh, optimization. I think that would be one of the criticisms. And the other would be that you know, the naturalistic fallacy that whatever is natural or adaptive is necessarily the, the thing that we want or the thing we want to pursue or the thing that's going to make us you know, happiest and, and healthiest. Uh, have you encountered these sorts of, these sorts of criticisms in your work? Sure have, and actually my trajectory is interesting on this count. Once you realize that natural selection shaped all these wondrous things, and if, you, if you're a doctor and you study how the kidney works and how the nephron works, you just got to be blown away by it. It's almost unbelievable it could be shaped by natural selection. And you really get into how, how the eye works. I mean, it's jury-rigged. It's inside out. I mean, you shouldn't have the vessels going between the light and the retina, but damn, it works well. I mean, a single photon can get detected. So first half of medical school, if you're paying attention, you're there in awe. And then you get to the second half of medical school and you go into the clinic and oh my God, it's like, you know, some drunk idiot designed this thing, you know, with uh, a place where the, the food goes down and clogs up your breathing tube and inflammation tends to cause all kinds of chronic diseases and your coronary arteries are too narrow. And then there's just pain. And what a blight on his pain is. And there's more chronic pain than there is useful pain. And with all of our attempts, we don't have any efficient way of getting rid of pain. And likewise for mental pain. 
In depression, what is it? It's mental pain. Just like physical pain is trying to get us to stop, do something. Depression, or at least I, I call it low mood, to make it clear I'm not necessarily talking about a pathological state. In low mood is trying to get us to stop doing things that aren't working. Now, in our modern life, we're often stuck in positions where we have to keep doing something that's not working, stuck in a bureaucracy or certain marriages or certain goals and that kind of thing. So I think that might account for a lot of modern depression. And now maybe we can go on to the fact about, are things really worse now? What do you think? Yeah. As an historian, I noticed that everybody always thinks it's worse than it's ever been. <laughs> yes. If you go back to Cicero, you probably can quote Cicero for me, but he was talking about how things are terrible in modern Rome. It's all too modern. Kids nowadays. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's all degenerate. And people are drinking too much and, and putting up, I love it, talking about women putting up their hair too much and using dyes in all this critique of people's, what, what people do everywhere, you know? So it makes it, everybody seems like, oh my God, there's so much more depression now and COVID is supposed to have caused this giant pandemic of mental disorders. Really? It's caused misery, all kinds of anxiety and low mood and misery and bad feelings and, and limitations on life. Make, makes people feel awful. Should we tell all these people they have a mental disorder and they need treatment? I don't think so. What their experience is, is misery. It is good to relieve that kind of bad feelings. And here's something that I've come up with just in the last year that I'm writing up now. Um, it's really quite profound, I think, that most experiences of bad feeling are useless but normal. What? A naive view, the one I've held previously, is natural selection should shape mechanisms so that most times when you have a bad feeling, it's useful. And if it's not useful, it's probably because the brain isn't working. And I think a lot of people automatically assume that. But it's wrong. In the first place, as we talked a minute ago, there are lots of false alarms in a perfectly normal system. Your smoke detector is going to give false alarms and you're going to have a lot of anxiety for no good reason. And then the worst part is that Natural selection has safe mechanisms to make these thresholds, make the sensitivity of these systems change depending on your environment. So if the way the pain system is supposed to work is that little hints of discomfort keep you away from danger, so you never really have tissue damage and pain. What if those aren't working? Then you do have tissue damage and pain. What does that mean? It means you're in a dangerous environment and you damn well better be more careful. And so the system becomes more sensitive and it's just a setup. It's one of these intrinsically vulnerable systems where the pain itself seems to indicate to the system that it needs to be more sensitive. And so it cranks up the pain until you get chronic pain. Something like that, I think, happens in depression and with anxiety, especially with panic. Now, people who get afraid of their panic symptoms get into a very nasty positive feedback cycle where fear of the symptoms causes anxiety, which causes more symptoms, which causes a panic attack. And then they start avoiding things and on it goes. And it's a terrible disorder, readily treatable with behavior therapy and proper medications. But you need to really understand what it is instead of just saying you have panic disorder, here's the treatment. I want to circle back to this is not merely a theoretical debate. This is something which has profound implications for the potential remediation of these things. I'd like you to circle back to this kind of focus on proximate mechanisms that seems to dominate in the medical profession. I think the vast majority of psychiatrists, the vast majority of psychologists, the vast majority of people who are either experiencing uh, mental illness or know people who are experiencing mental illness would describe their situation as a brain disorder or a chemical imbalance, or they would point to the these proximate mechanisms. Why is this uh, a problem? If taking a pill alleviates the negative feelings, if adjusting the chemicals uh, and rebalancing them solves the problem, why does anybody care? Isn't this just a, a dispute about how many angels there are on a pin? 
That's such a good question, Greg, because many times when I do quick radio interviews, the radio interviewers say, so Dr. Nessie, you think that low mood can be useful and therefore you, you shouldn't be taking antidepressants, right? And I say, no, no, no. I mean, pain is useful. Would you never take something to relieve your pain? But what you should do if you're a doctor or a patient is analyze that pain and say, do I need this pain now to protect me? And if you've just broken your leg, don't take anything to relieve your pain until you got it you know, set and in a cast, right? because you're just gonna hurt it more. The pain is really useful then. But if we really understand all of these emotions and all of these other unpleasant feelings in evolutionary terms, then doctors and patients can start making better decisions. I think the most profound implication of evolutionary medicine for everyday medical practice is how to use medications to relieve suffering correctly. 99 times out of 100, it's okay. It's not going to hurt somebody. For instance, if you have fever and malaise when you have a cold, can you take some Tylenol to make it better? Yeah, you can. Is it going to make you get better more slowly? Probably not. There's so many other mechanisms going on other than the fever itself that are fighting the virus or the bacteria that are causing your problem. On the other hand, there are times when it is not very sensible. I mean, most doctors know that if you take somebody post-surgery who's coughing, and you give them something to stop their cough, that's a real reliable way of giving them a pneumonia that might even kill them. Doctors know not to give cough medicine. In fact, a lot of times after surgery, they ask people to cough and make them cough more to get secretions out of the lungs. So my plea is for psychiatrists and general physicians who treat mental problems to take a proper medical approach because these symptoms we're experiencing are symptoms, not diseases, Usually. And now we come to the point that everybody wants things to be simple, right? Is depression a brain disease or is it caused by your situation in life? Come on, you guys. Let's get a little more subtle. Sometimes it's useful. A lot of times it's normal but useless. And a lot of people do have brain abnormalities or drugs they're taking or inflammation that causes their depression. The same person can have three episodes of depression for three different causes. I would like everybody in the mental health professions to act like real doctors and investigate every symptom on an individual basis to try to understand why this person is having these symptoms now. And one thing about medicine that, that is, makes it different from science as generally understood is that it is fundamentally a normative discipline, right? There is a science describes what happens and what causes it and so forth. But medicine is really, it's normative in the sense that you, know, you have sick and you, and you have healthy and healthy is where you want to be and, and sick is where you, you don't want to be. And you know, these norms inform what doctors will do. And so you, you describe an interesting about the DSM-5 and the debate around classifying these you know disorders. And you describe how you know, if someone is experiencing uh, a negative mood in the aftermath of the death of a loved one, that could be classified as, as a disorder. It's unavoidable that you're going to have kind of normative principles in a, in a practical discipline like medicine. Do you think that we do a good enough job of debating the implied normativity of these? Uh, I, I think maybe we do. Descriptive terms? We do too good a job of trying to argue about these things. One of the articles I've written that's lasted the longest and is still quoted widely is called On the Difficulty of Defining Disease. So it was for a big conference where we were all supposed to get together and finally decide what is disease and what is not disease. And my point is, hey, take an evolutionary viewpoint and you realize that this is not a question we're going to come to an answer about, partly because of what you're talking about, partly because it's normative as well as dysfunctional. There's a fellow named Jerry Wakefield, who I think has been the leader in this, and he's written several wonderful books about medicine and about depression and anxiety, pointing out what he calls harmful dysfunction as a phrase 
to define what he means by disease. And he takes a wonderful evolutionary view by dysfunction. He says, it's not a disease unless it's something that's not working right. But it's also got to be harmful, and it's much harder to, to figure out what is harmful, because that's a, a judgment that we make in our social context. I'm writing another paper very soon with a philosopher in Australia named Paul Griffiths, and we're going to revisit this whole issue and see if we can't make progress. But I think my theme will continue to be, hey, guys, we're not going to define what disease is, because that's an essentialized notion of, of something that it, it doesn't have a specific reality in the world. It's, it's our attempt to make sense of bodies either not working right or making us feel bad when they are working right. Well, our views of what are good and bad or sick and healthy, they are socially created to some degree and they vary over time. So the notion of pain, for instance, I think there have been times in our culture where pain is considered a uh, fortifying thing, you know, something that you have to go through. It builds character, right? Some of us may have had some parents who, who, who believed that to something that is an unalloyed bad thing that needs to be alleviated. Or we live in a culture, at least in America, where happiness is, hey, we have a right to pursue it. We have a duty to pursue it. And if your mood is, is low, then, you know, you, there's something wrong with you. Like you should feel bad. This isn't true, I think, in every society. It's, it's certainly more true in ours than, than others. I have such an ambivalent relationship with the marvelous field of positive psychology because it was a long time coming that people paid attention to positive emotions as well as just negative ones. The negative ones are the ones people want help with, so it's obvious we should study those. And finally, a bunch of really good psychologists began studying positive emotions. But there is this strong tendency to be like, we should feel positive emotions and we should strive for positive emotions. There are some pretty easy ways that they suggest where you can feel better about your life. I mean, simply writing down every day um, some things you're grateful for and connecting with people you care about really can make life better promptly. On the other hand, I th also see people striving for happiness as a goal. And probably my deepest insight about low mood, the one that my residents tell me helps them more than anything else I've ever taught them, is that pursuing an unreachable goal, that's what sets off normal low mood. Because the low mood is trying to get you to stop doing stuff that's wasteful and, and hopeless. And if you keep on trying to accomplish something where you're not making any progress, well, then the ordinary low mood escalates up into bad depression. Eric Klinger was the psychologist who wrote profoundly about this back in 1975. I wish I had read it years before, and I wish every psychiatrist and clinical psychologist would read it now. And now we come back to positive psychology. I do see people who are striving to be happy all the time. And I'm not sure that works. I would instead advocate respecting our emotions and not letting them take control of us when we feel that they're not you know, in our best interests. And so often they're trying to get us to do things that are good for our genes, or there are things like those positive feedback cycles I talked about, that the system might be normal, but it certainly isn't good for us. And this brings us back to what should we do? We should relieve suffering whenever we can. And life is so miserable for so many people, and we do have ways. Medications and meditation and psychotherapy and other things. You know, we can make life better now, and it's wonderful that we have some skills to do it. But that doesn't mean we should just say your negative emotions are, are bad or brain problems. And now I'm going to pause a second and say, just so there's no misunderstanding, a lot of them are brain problems. And we do need to keep looking for that. This simplification where people try to make one generalizations for everything is just the bane of subtle thinking in this field. I was wondering if you could dig into this idea of your mood model as one that's based on foraging theory and this idea of propitiousness. Uh, could you dig into that a little bit more and elaborate on it for us? 
I spent a whole year just trying to understand emotions, Greg. I figured, hey, if I'm going to be treating people with emotional problems every day, I should understand the science of emotions. And I went to my thousand-page psychiatry textbook, and it had one half of one page about the emotions. But I thought, oh, I'll figure this out. I'll get in and read a bunch of stuff. Oh, man, did I get miserable because it was all about how many basic emotions are there and what's the function of each. And finally, I came to quite a simple conclusion that I think most people have come to share. It is that we shouldn't be asking what the function of each emotion is. Instead, from an evolutionary point of view, we should be asking, in what situation is that emotion useful? Anxiety, when is it useful? When you're in a dangerous situation. It helps you escape and avoid dangerous situations. Low mood is harder. In what situation is low mood useful? Well, in what situations is it best be pessimistic and not want to do anything and feel bad about yourself? But it turns out that there's a lot of situations in which that's the case. The most global one I call unpropitious situations, but that's just fancy talk for, hey, situations where no matter what you do, you're wasting your energy. But one thing I've been coming clear about with a chapter I've just been writing for a book on evolution and psychiatry is that natural selection has gradually differentiated global mood or low the depression into all kinds of subtypes to cope with different kinds of situations. One might be, hey, you can't find any food, and every time you go walking for a few kilometers to find some, you're wasting your effort. But really, for we humans, mostly what we're foraging for is each other's affection and respect. And that makes it so complicated. because So we're constantly looking with every little glance and every little intonation is that person like me? Is that person criticizing me? Are they flattering me? You know, we're just so damn subtle and we're so sensitized to those kind of things that it makes life rich and complicated. The good part is that it makes most people pretty nice. There's no other species that can cooperate to any near, anywhere near the way that we can. But it also makes things complicated because people aren't always honest. We're not even honest with ourselves a lot of the times. And now we're down the rabbit hole to where things get complicated. So then mental health is really not about maximizing positive emotions. It's about having, and philosophers have always argued that it's about having, being well calibrated so that response is the appropriate one for the signal or for the environment. Yeah, Martha Nussbaum, of course, has marvelous writing about, you know, ancient Greek philosophers. And what they were really doing is trying to understand how we could live better lives uh, so we could be happier. Or should we be more virtuous? And there is a debate that keeps going on right to this very day. And my question is for things like that, hey, why do we keep arguing about that? And I think it just goes very deep to our, our human nature. I wish there was some way that all of this could just make everybody feel better most of the time. I'm pessimistic, sorry, about you know our ability to magically wave away most of the suffering people have. I Early in my work as an anxiety disorder specialist, we all hoped that we were going to find some medication that would just stop anxiety safely, Valium, but without any side effects or addiction. But if you look at the history of trying to control pain, same issue. And we still don't have reliable ways of controlling pain effectively without side effects or addiction. And the whole system doesn't involve a few neurons or a few genes. It involves the entire system that's been shaped by natural selection. And here's a hobby horse of mine. I've been writing recently about what I call tacit creationism. And by that, I mean the tendency to think about the body and the mind as if they're machines with separate parts designed by an engineer, each one of which has a function connected in straightforward ways. And I think this is not just in psychiatry, not just in medicine. It's all through biology. We try to label each part of the brain. What's its function? We try to name each gene in terms of what's its function. But that's not what natural selection shapes. Natural selection shapes organic complexity 
where every single thing has multiple functions and every single function is carried out by multiple genes and multiple neurotransmitters. It wasn't very many years ago where we were trying to say dopamine causes schizophrenia and serotonin deficit causes depression and other things cause anxiety. Sorry, yeah, different neurotransmitters have somewhat different roles, but that kind of simple mapping, it again reflects this human tendency for our, our we're, sed we're seduced by simplicity. You know, we're just desperate for monocausal explanations. And that's good because it's hard to even talk to somebody about the real complexity going on, but it's wrong when we try to make these simplistic assumptions. I think another point is that even if you're super well calibrated for the objectives that would maximize your fitness, that, that doesn't mean you're well calibrated for a happy or, or a fulfilling life. I think there's countless examples. You talk about the hedonic treadmill, for instance. I mean, this is a fantastic adaptation if you're trying to get individuals to pursue grand goals that will lead to greater reproductive success. It's not necessarily a recipe for an enjoyable, happy, and fulfilling life, right? I think the social groups we are in deserve more study in terms of how they influence us. Every university now is trying to do things to make life better for their students and faculty. Work-life balance courses, even, to help people do work-life balance. And then at the end of the year, they say, and how many papers did you write? And how many grants did you get? And how many patients did you see? Um, <laughs> you know, so on the one hand, and the dean either gets hired or fired or promoted or demoted based on how many papers and grants and dollars and great glory came in. Likewise, in business, it's the same thing. People want you know, to have their employees be happy uh, so that they will work harder, be more productive. And it, it's, I think there's something inherent in social groups, especially when, when leaders are promoted and rewarded for the productivity of the group. On the one hand, they say they want to protect and help and like their employees and the people in the group. But they also do a lot of things to provide the rewards to the people who do much more for that group instead of their family and themselves. Is this too cynical? What do you think, Greg? <laughs> I think you're, I think you're onto something there. I was wondering if in the book, uh, Why We Get Sick, I think you introduced, there's a whole bunch of different concepts which have taken on life. I think one of which uh, that you elaborate on is the whole mismatch theory, where it's certainly not the most important reason for disease, but now that we've sort of tamed all the infectious diseases, all the, you know, vector-borne diseases, not all of them, but, you know, a lot of this stuff has gotten out of the way and, and now like new sorts of ailments have come to the fore. And some of them are just ones that were lurking in the background and were hidden by our short life expectancy. But there, there are others that have arisen due to a mismatch between the, the environment that we find ourselves in and the one that we're adapted for. I was wondering if you could you know, comment on how that has taken on a life of its own. I mean, you know, we're surrounded by people who are advocating the, uh, the paleo diet and saying that we need to run barefoot and so forth. It, it seems to have been at least influential for a small group of people, but I would guess that for most, this hasn't really sunk in. I know if my dentist tells me that my teeth are crooked because of my genes and my eye doctor tells me that my, I need eyeglasses because of my genes and it hasn't been adopted uniformly. Some have really embraced this and maybe even gone overboard with it and others have really failed to acknowledge it. Yeah. So this whole idea of mismatch is something that George Williams and I emphasized in that book. And I was delighted just a few days ago to get a paper that's soon to be published by my philosopher friend, Paul Griffiths, where he, in 92 pages, goes through in exquisite detail the origins 
of the idea of mismatch and how it's applied and misapplied in medicine and elsewhere. I, I look forward to reading it very carefully. Well, I thought, I thought it started with Genesis. Didn't it start with Genesis? I thought Genesis was the first mismatch story. Well, you know, you read about Noah in his tent lying drunk and naked in the Bible. If they hadn't had ways of fermenting and storing heart liquor, um, there wouldn't have been that story in the Bible. And in ancient Rome, you know what they did in ancient Rome to make their wine taste better? They put ground up lead in their wine. I mean, now we're panicked about even touching lead, right? They put lead in their wine and there's a whole, in fact, you're a story. You may know this better than I do, but some historians have said that you know, the rich Romans were the only one who could afford leaded wine. And guess what that did to them and their children? Just wiped out. Uh, the mental capacity of the entire upper class. So this is, goes back a long ways. I think, again, as always, there's a tendency to generalize. In psychiatry, there are several books written saying all mental disorders are products of mismatch in modern life. No, that's not true. Some are, though. I think in particular, addiction and eating disorders deserve special scrutiny. You can't get addicted to something if you can't get reliable supplies of it. Alcohol has been with us a long time because... It's so much fun and it's easy to make and transport. You can do it any place. Other drugs, you can get them from plants and many cultures have, but pure supplies and hypodermic needles and, and cigarette papers, those are all kind of new. So they make it possible to get addicted to nicotine and, and other kinds of things. So I've been trying to think more deeply about how should we think about why we are vulnerable to addiction? Because those are some of the greatest you know, curses on our whole species. And first you have to ask, so what's the trait that's a product of natural selection? And the trait is we really get off on drugs. We like them and they cause reward mechanisms to get stimulated. So then you ask the second evolutionary question, is that preference for taking drugs and alcohol something shaped by natural selection or is it an accident? I come down quite strong and I think, hey, it's an accident. You know, we got a brain, it's run by chemicals. The chemicals that run the reward system are dopaminergic and, and the like. And so things that stimulate those areas of the brain, those chemicals reinforce us and we get trapped into cycles of using them more. Other people don't agree with me. They would say that maybe we like alcohol because it is safer than drinking water way back when. Or maybe it makes us bond better with other people. Maybe using nicotine deworms us. It's hard to test those hypotheses. But again, it, something that's built into us is this fascination with function. And so I think once you get the idea that natural selection does shape all these interesting, subtle adaptations, it's very tempting to go ahead and try to ask for everything. How is it useful? What I've tried to demonstrate in this little discussion about addiction is the question isn't why did natural selection shape addiction? The question is, why did natural selection shape brains that get off on drugs? And we don't have a secure answer to that question yet. Now, the second part, or the third part, really, to a full explanation of addiction is the prevalence of runaway feedback processes, vicious cycles. And the problem with taking drugs is the more you take, the more you want. And now we come to eating disorders, much the same thing there, you know? People keep talking about, there's a lot of papers saying, how are eating disorders useful? You know, if I had to say one thing about the challenge and the mistake that's common in evolutionary psychiatry and evolutionary medicine, it is trying to say, how is this disorder useful? Disorders aren't useful. On the other hand, the traits that make us vulnerable to those disorders are useful, and there are good evolutionary reasons why those traits leave us vulnerable. One big one is mismatch that we were coming back to. But I think we need for every disorder to try to understand in more depth. Let me go on about eating disorders for just a second. Why is it that we're vulnerable to eating disorders? 
And some people say, well, it's to stop reproduction at times when you don't have enough food so you don't waste a pregnancy. Yeah, but you don't have to stop eating to stop reproduction. Yeah, your body does that all by itself just fine. If you're going to stop eating when you're already starving, that'll kill you. So that kind of explanation doesn't work at all. Here's another ridiculous one, I think. People who are anorexic run a lot. And someone suggested that when you're starving, it's good to run a lot to go to someplace else where there might be more food. Maybe, but if you talk with people who are anorexic about why they run, they say it's to lose weight. It's not to run to find someplace. But how do we understand eating disorders? Well, there is another mechanism in there that is prepared to protect us against famine. When we're starving, there's a built-in mechanism that makes us find whatever food we can and eat it as fast as we can and even to hide that food from other people. Anorexics are notorious for concealing their eating and concealing their food. If you're starving, that's a really smart thing to do. So what happens in modern life? In modern life, we starve ourselves trying to lose weight, thinking that our willpower can triumph over our appetites. And that's a bad thing to do. It just doesn't work, does it? Every time, after a day or two days or three days, you find yourself staring at an empty half gallon of ice cream or a whole loaf of bread. The mechanism goes off and our willpower is pretty feeble compared to that for most people. For the vast majority of people, they become bulimic. They gorge and they vomit and they vomit and they gorge. Very few people are able to control themselves. They become anorexic. A disease, a real disease that is a killer. And because once it really gets going, everything goes haywire, cognition goes haywire. But the origin of it, I think, is again a positive feedback cycle where you start dieting, it makes you go out of control and gain a little weight because the system resets to a higher set point in situations of scarcity. And so you try harder yet to stop your food intake. And for both eating disorders and addiction, I think at the base of this is something you might be especially interested in. And that is most humans believe that they can control their impulses. They can control their... Nobody starts taking heroin and says, I might get addicted. No, they say, oh, I can control it. I know I can control it. And nobody starts, people diet and say, oh, I can just stop my eating. Overwhelmingly, it's not true. But our minds are shaped in ways to make it seem like it's true. I think for most people, when they hear uh, about, say, something like Darwinian medicine, they're probably thinking that you're concerned only with hardwired behaviors and hardwired biological tendencies. But in fact, quite a bit of it is context dependent, is environment contingent. And the things that are evolved are really if-then mechanisms. And so you might have mental disorders that are radically different from society to society or from time period to time period based on the cultural conditions of that society or the technological conditions of that society. There's a whole literature, right, on, you know, like the wandering disease in the 18th century. And there's the disease of the shrinking penis in the Philippines. And anorexia is something that you don't, have, you don't see, you know, in all parts of the world. I think wherever you find people stopping food intake for whatever reason, and I think there were religious devotees back centuries ago who would stop eating and got into the same some kind of patterns. Modern times, it's people trying to make their bodies match some cultural ideal, which is probably why there's so much more of it now. So I want to get back to some of the kind of psychological problems that might be more common now than in the past. And, you know, I, I certainly want to, I don't want to fall prey to the idea that everything's getting worse. And, and you certainly see in the media, lots of concerns that depression is on the rise among young people. And there's a lot of, certainly a great deal of medication that's being given to our children today, you know, and the rates, or at least the diagnosed rates of a variety of psychological ailments seem to be on the rise. Does this reflect a, an increase 
in psychological problems or does this reflect a, a change in the way the medical profession is thinking about our psychological state of health? So there's a nice article that appeared in The Lancet just last week, and it was called Revisiting One in Four, because previously people had said one in four people in the UK has a mental disorder. And so they reviewed all the statistics for the past 15 years to ask, is it really one in four? And are things really getting worse? And when they looked at it more carefully, they said, well, it's more like one in six, which is still a lot of people. But no, there's hardly any evidence that anxiety and depression and other disorders are getting worse. There is some other evidence that maybe in young people in the UK, that social media use may be causing increases in anxiety and depression. So I I wouldn't rule it out. I've been saying elsewhere that social media are for the mind what fast food is for the body. It's what we want and it's not good for us in terms of living a stable and wholesome life. Isn't it wonderful that we do have proper epidemiology to answer these questions, though? I mean, people are doing these studies and in a few years we will know. Of course, the public debate about social media taking over our lives. And here we are talking online and people are... I I talked with a professor friend yesterday. I wanted to meet with... With her, she said, well, actually, I'm on Zoom from Thursday morning until Friday at 5 p.m. every hour. Could we talk next week? What? <laughs> You're on Zoom every single hour? That's cruel and unusual punishment. But, but in a way, I mean, if, if someone says diabetes is a problem, obesity is a problem, and it's a result of this, say, mismatch, I don't think the right counter to that is to say, yeah, people had cholera 100 years ago. Because that's not really, it's not really saying, like the question, the relevant question is not, are we better or worse off than we were 200 exactly, years ago? Exactly. The question is, are we as good as we could be? So even if mental illness is the same now as it was 50 years ago, they had you know, very different reasons like the, the Nazis, right? Or whatever, or high infant mortality rates, or you know, maybe we should be in a better place mentally now. And, and if we're not, maybe it's because there, there are these things like social media that we could potentially So there's real Uh, evidence about this, Greg, that I think we can attend to. I mean, rates of depression in Japan and Korea are about one-eighth of what they are in the United States. The United States is the world leader. But is that just because we overdiagnose? I mean, we overdiagnose prostate cancer. No, it's not. Uh, These are proper epidemiological, random, selected subjects studied in standardized ways. No, I think these are real differences in these disorders. You do not find these differences for obsessive-compulsive disorder or autism or schizophrenia, I think those disorders are an entirely different category. And on the one hand, we have anxiety and depression. Those are emotions that are useful sometimes and really prone to dysregulation and prone to going off when they're useless but normal. But with these other disorders in the middle, these behavioral things like addiction and eating disorders, those are behavioral problems where people get into positive feedback cycles that trap them. But then you go further towards the cognitive, highly heritable disorders like schizophrenia, OCD, bipolar disorder, and autism. Those things, I think, reflect fundamental limits on how good you can make the mental apparatus. It's like computer programs, you know, they're going to crash. And and the people who make them keep trying to make them so they don't crash. But there's always something in there that is going to make them crash. And it's like the automobile that we started with. You were talking about vapor lock. It's intrinsic to gasoline engines to have engineering challenge to avoid vapor lock. And the the idea I'm working on right now is one that there may be many aspects of the mind that are problems for the same reason that we have problems with our hips and our ankles and our feet. 
Standing upright was a huge innovation, but it was also a huge transition. And it's left us not only with pain in all of those joints, but with hemorrhoids and with hernias and with all kinds of other problems. Maybe in another million years, natural selection will take care of those things. But in the meanwhile, the whole system is very slowly adjusting to a whole new way of standing up. And I think in our social world, it's not just the past million years, it's the past 10 to 20,000 years, where all of a sudden we have cities and bureaucracies and economies, and we've coped remarkably well. We're such an adaptable species, but I do think we're in this new niche we're in a fundamentally new social cognitive niche, and it's damned hard for an old-fashioned system to make the adaptations. And I think there are aspects of our mental apparatus are just like our bad hips and our bad knees that are just going to take a long time to adapt to this new niche. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at the, the kludge that is standing upright and the impact it has on birth and our backs and so forth, there's not a whole lot we can do about it except wait another couple hundred thousand years to evolve better backs. And we may not be able to, but other things like plantar fasciitis are a direct result of much, much more recent social phenomenon that could be easily adapted. Having a different chair design or having people squat instead of sit on chairs. Those are relatively easy fixes. I'm not sure if everybody knows what plantar fasciitis is. Can I ask if you've had that? I haven't, but I do have a lot of cramping in my feet, which I suspect is due to sitting quite a bit. I've been bothered by plantar fasciitis a couple of times, so I had to ride my bike instead of walking and the like. And from an evolutionary viewpoint, this is a product of mismatch. Our ancestors didn't have chairs to sit in. They squatted with their butt slightly touching the ground, constantly stretching the band of tissue that goes from the heel to the big toe. And because that was constantly stretched, it was fine. We sit in a chair all day and that tissue contracts. And then because we've been sitting in a chair all day, we go out and run and whoa, whoa, and we rip it right off the bone. The solution is to squat. And for me, if I read while trying to squat for half an hour a day, that solves the problem. On the other hand, I can't squat for very long. I don't know about you because you have to do it ever since you were a kid to be able to keep things flexible enough to do it. And then there's shoes in general. Dan Lieberman, the chair of the Human Evolution Department at Harvard, has written marvelous books and articles about locomotion and the fact that the whole foot muscles and conformation are designed to go barefoot and that strengthens the foot and shapes the foot and the arch and everything else. Put it all in a shoe where no muscles have to do anything and the whole thing falls apart. And then you're dependent on shoes. Otherwise, you're going to have problems. That's deep knowledge. I mean, if we could get everybody to have their kids mostly not use, you know, super supportive shoes, that could protect people from foot problems later in life. I think his work is profound in its ability to prevent real crippling disorders. So I, I heard a talk recently by uh, the head of Stanford's medical school, and he said, we don't have a healthcare system. We have a sick care system. And our doctors, their job is to go in and make sick people well again. And what we really want is we want a system that kind of reduces the likelihood that people become sick. But that seems to require a vastly larger research agenda, and particularly in the area of mental health, where you point out that research into mental health is just a tiny fraction of, say, research into cancer. But it seems like it's almost impossible to do that kind of research without also doing research into, you know, sociology and economics and philosophy. I mean, if you really want people to be healthy, maybe, the, for instance, diabetes, instead of giving insulin, it might be to make soda illegal or instead of, you know, having... People, people would for, find for, a way to get their soda. 
you know, instead of designing drugs, genetic drugs to help with lung cancer, maybe it's like, hey, let's just ban cigarettes. Or, you know, there might be these interventions might be non-medical interventions that would alleviate the problem. So maybe we can wrap up by talking a little bit about how these ideas about why systems fail can be expanded to talk about things like the medical care delivery system. One of my friends and colleagues is Denny Cortese, a former CEO of Mayo Clinic, who's now at ASU, Arizona State University. And he and his colleagues are going to various medical practices and trying to help them find ways of spending their time and energy actually improving health instead of just doing procedures that bring in money. Now, the key to that really is capitation, where you give health systems funding to keep people healthy instead of just to do things to them once they already get sick. And he's had a remarkable success. People want to do the right thing, but the overall system, it's not just that it's corrupt, it's just that it inherently has evolved in ways that are not designed to maximize health. They're designed, they're not designed at all. They just evolve following the money. I mean, hospitals do procedures that pay money and doctors, I mean, there are all these Botox doctors who could be doing things to save people's health, but instead it's a whole different lifestyle to do Botox and the like. But medical care delivery systems, I think, can be understood in the same way as bodies. Part of the problem with them is that they're path dependent. That means they can't start fresh. So we know how we could change systems to capitation to make our healthcare dollars go farther. But because the system's entrenched, we're kind of stuck. The whole system in the United States in particular, we spend way more than any other country and get way less for it. But because the insurance companies are so powerful and because the hospitals are getting such large payments from the government for doing procedures, very hard to change that system once it gets entrenched. So this is path dependence and mismatch really with a modern kind of environment where you could use those dollars to such greater impact uh, and then there are the inherent difficulties with medical care systems. Can you get people to actually uh, help people exercise and do other things that will improve their health? It's not as interesting as doing surgery, but there are a lot of people helping with that too. And people will pay trainers. If I had to say one thing that would help the health of the country, it's to provide parks and gyms and all kinds of fitness opportunities. I've been talking with someone else about this, June Jun, who is trying to help create a White House conference on nutrition. And boy, oh boy, there are things we can do and there are people doing them. But what they're finding constantly is that they have to fight constantly against these. And not, they're not bad systems. They're just systems that have evolved uh, to do what's good for themselves. And now we come back to the deepest insight about evolution and our, our minds. Our damn minds have evolved to do what's good for our genes, not what's good for us. And that causes all kinds of problems. Fascinating stuff. I, I noticed that in the last year or so, the, there was a direct correlation between anxiety levels and the reading of news. <laughs> it's, and I don't know whether I don't know whether that's a good thing or not. But we all read it every day. We keep telling ourselves we're not going to read news. But then we do and scroll all day long. What, what's that about? <laughs> it's just like social media or, or junk food for our brains, you know? That's not even social well, media, I, just plain old media. I, actually, we just, let's pause there one second. What is in the news these days? Answer? whatever we will click on, with multiple different headlines being tried out to see which one will get us to click to go to the next page to get advertising dollars. And the whole system is not there to provide for us the kind of accurate information, easily accessible that we need. It's been shaped to maximize profits. And the companies are running it can't help that very well. So once we can, in these same evolutionary ideas that help us understand why bodies are vulnerable, I think help explain why medical care delivery systems are suboptimal and why things like our media systems are not giving us what we'd like them to give us. Well, I think that's also a bit of a mismatch, right? Because if, if you live in a community of 300 people and one person gets eaten by a shark, it's like, hey, you know, you got to stay out of the water. 
But in a, when you have 330 million people and one person gets eaten by a shark, our, our brains say stay out of the water, even though it's a much, much less likely. As a Bayesian, you know, you're supposed to say, yeah, that's no big deal. And worse yet, and with great public health consequences, are all the news stories now talking about people who have been fully vaccinated dying of COVID or getting COVID. And th three people in Seattle died after getting COVID vaccination. How likely is it that you will get COVID after you've been vaccinated? It's one in 10,000. How likely is it that you'll die after getting vaccinated? It's about one in a million. It's more dangerous to drive to the corner store to pick up some milk and twice as dangerous as driving to the corner store to pick up a bottle of vodka. But just as you were saying, the media do stuff that gets us to click and we're like, oh my God, people who have gotten vaccinated are still vulnerable. It's good to know they're still vulnerable because you shouldn't just go out willy-nilly just because you're vaccinated. We should wrap it up here in a second. I've really enjoyed talking with you, though, Greg. Very interesting. I hope the podcast develops really well. Well, Randy, I miss going to all the conferences and learning from everybody in person. But this book was, you know, I found this book unputdownable 20 years ago, and I, I was glad to reread it in preparation for this. And, and so much of it is still relevant. So much of it is still fresh. I think there's still so much that can be learned from this book. And of course, this book is just is, is wonderful. I think anybody who has concerns about mental illness or low mood or has experienced it, which means every human being should, you know, definitely think about this. And this is not just a work of medicine. It's also a, a book of psychology, biology, and, and philosophy, indeed. You quote Aristotle and... Uh, it's trying to get my fellow psychiatrists on board with bringing in this new science and be interesting at the same time. People who are interested should go to goodreasons.info. Goodreasons.info has all the information, and I'd, I'd love for people to spread the word. We'll promote that. So thanks so much, Randy, for joining. I appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity, Greg. Thanks very much. Look forward to being with you again sometime. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.